Welcome to the Archways Podcast. Archways is a production of Johnson C. Smith University and is being recorded in the studios of JCSU in Charlotte, North Carolina. My name is Brian Madison Jones and I will serve as your co-host and moderator for the Archways Podcast. I'm also the Dean of the College of Arts and Letters and Associate Professor of History. And I'm Dr. Matthew DeForest, Associate Professor of English and Chair of the Department of Languages and Literature and your co-host for Archways. Thanks so much, Dr. DeForest. Uh, We have some guests here today to talk about historically black colleges and universities in general and to talk about Johnson C. Smith University in particular. Uh, We have two students and a faculty member, so I'll I'll ask you guys to introduce yourselves. And then, Ron, if you could go first, please. Sure. My name is Ron Stodgill. I'm an assistant professor in uh, interdisciplinary studies, and I'm the author of Where Everybody Looks Like Me uh, at the Crossroads of America's Black Colleges and Culture. I am Tando Lomo, uh, a student here at Johnson C. Smith University. I also serve as Miss Johnson C. Smith University, and that role basically implies that I I represent the school on a regional and national level, and um, I compete against other uh, HBCUs in representing the school to the best of my ability. Hello, I'm Israel Spencer, also a student here at Johnson C. Smith University, a senior. Um, I also have the uh, pleasure of serving my university as Mr. Johnson C. Smith University, uh, as well as Tando. I serve as the official host. I'm an official ambassador of the university. Um, I sit on the board of our Student Government Association as well, representing uh, the university on a local and national level, um, and really assisting the university with its initiatives and programs and such like that. Israel, could you talk a little bit about how one becomes Mr. JCSU and and where you come from in particular and how you ended up at Smith? Of course, of course. Well, as Mr. JCSU, it's kind of like a a little process that we have to go through in order to uh, obtain the position. One, um, we have a meeting, uh, a meeting that we attend showing our interest. Um, Secondly is an application portion um, where we need to fill out an application and then we obtain uh, letters of recommendation from faculty and staff. Um, then we further go on with an interview portion where we're interviewed by faculty and staff and administration. Um, and then after that, after we're picked, we have to put on an entire pageant in front of the university, which is kind of fun, um, if you like stuff like that. Um, so then after the pageant, uh, we uh, do a big um, election. So students go out and have to uh, really vote for who they want and who they feel best fits as Mr. or Miss JCSU. And after that, it's, 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 it's smooth sailing. You find out who won, and I'm so lucky and blessed to uh, serve as Mr. Johnson C. Smith University. And, and briefly, Israel, before we, we move to Tondo, mm-hmm. could you tell us where you're from? And oh, yes. I'm um, uh, from Long Island, New York, originally born and raised. I moved down here after I graduated high school, so now I'm relocated to Charlotte. And I am from Johannesburg, South Africa, and uh, so the topic of um, HBCUs and Johnson C. Smith has been an interesting one for me as well, um, as this is something that I've, a culture that I've learned to immerse myself in and learn uh, so much about. So um, I can definitely say that uh, I stand uh, with the the listeners who are not necessarily of a, um, American descent or, or of American nationality, uh, who are willing to learn so much about this culture and what it means. Ron, could you talk to us a little bit about um, the the origins of an HBCU? Tell us what an HBCU is and tell us where HBCUs came from and why they came to be. 
Well, HBCU is an acronym for historically black colleges and universities and is really a, a distinction, a federal distinction that began out of the um, Civil Rights Acts in the 19, uh, late 60s. However, um, they were formed. Um, that is only sort of a, a policy recognition and a funding, a funding apparatus. They really were formed right after um, the, the Civil War, mostly, right? And they were formed to educate freed slaves. And they have, um, there are about 105 of them. They're probably equal in number, um, public and private. And they really grow out of a recognition of inequality in this country. Um, they grow out of, um, you know, uh, prohibiting slaves from, from, from reading. They grow out of, um, you know, laws that were literacy laws. They grow out of um, just basic, um, our inability to gain traction in the economy through whether it's Jim Crow or, you know, um, um, years of, of discrimination. And so um, today they still serve as kind of a bedrock of the, of the middle class. Um, they fuel, you know, um, they fuel ambition, they fuel national or community pride. They are the place where our scientists, um, our artists, our political leaders, our theologians um, get their start, right? And so they are the kind of nerve center, frankly, of the um, black community in this country. And you said there are about 105 Right. Uh, across the country and yeah. where? Um, uh, Primarily in the south, in southeast. They start, they're probably as far north, um, northeast as um, 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 uh, up in, in uh, Cheney University up in Pennsylvania. And they stretch as probably far west as Langston in Oklahoma. And some are public and some are private. Correct. Um, and that distinction is one that I think is not unique to the United States, but in this case we mean that public institutions are uh, funded largely by the state. That's um, correct, The yes. state of North Carolina, the state of Pennsylvania, what have you. And private institutions such as Johnson C. Smith uh, derive their funding largely from tuition revenue uh, and also other, other private grants and things of that nature. And, and just so that our... Um our audience in China is, is aware of the timeline here. Uh, the American Civil War, I will defer yeah, to our you. history professor <laughs> yeah, uh, to give us the much. dates of the American Civil War, <laughs> mid-1800s. Right, yeah, this is, the, this is 1860s, 1870s, uh, early 1860s and into the middle part of that. And, of course, the Reconstruction Era follows uh, during which the states have to sort of put themselves back together after um, war. Um, I'm trying to Im imagine uh, a comparable point in Chinese history, uh, my, my 19th century Chinese history fails me, but by the 1860s, you know, we're, we're um, uh, several hundred years into the Qing dynasty, um, but uh, only about 50 years from the beginning of its collapse. So um, the, uh, the imperial period of China's is starting to wind down in the 1860s. Um, as, uh, as, as students, I wonder if, if Tondo of Israel, if you could talk about um, maybe what folks outside the United States may not know about HBCUs. And, and, and as soon as I asked that question, I realized 
that there's probably a lot that folks inside the United States don't know about <laughs> HBCUs. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that from a student's perspective. You know, what's what's unique about this place? What's unique about HBCUs? Um, and, and perhaps why how you ended up at an HBCU? And then we'll, we'll talk about Johnson C. Smith specifically in a bit. Uh, well, I think what most people and what people like myself actually didn't know about uh, HBCUs, especially coming from uh, South Africa, is that these are places that are designed for people who look what, like one another, can relate to one another, have experienced the same things as one another's, and um, you know suffer from the same kind of um, uh, anxieties when it comes to societal segregations. And that's not just in uh, a racial form, but in forms that a lot of people don't understand. Uh, coming from South Africa, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood and um, never could identify with uh, people who were like me. I was too white for the for the black kids and too black for the white kids. And um, I came here and I find a, a, a sense of balance uh, between being myself and being um, the color that I am. Uh, and... Um, I think what I love most about these HBCUs is that these are families. Um, they're spaces where not only can you learn, but you can grow to love people who are um, different from you in, in, in who they are, but the same uh, as you are in uh, what they want to be, what they want to do, the kind of successes and achievements that they want to see themselves uh, be a part of. And I think. Um, a lot of people look into HBCUs and uh, co completely separate themselves from them because they don't uh, realize that uh, these are places that embrace everybody. Historically, um, HBCUs were predominantly uh, black, but now we found that HBCUs are evolving and anybody who feels the same sense of um, separation of, uh, of some sort from sexuality uh, differences to uh, racial differences to just differences in the way that they think these are people who still belong in HBCUs even though they are not of brown skin um, and so what I admire so much about them is their ability to uh, to link people who are from all sorts of parts of the world uh, and now at this point even people who are from China uh, to, to kind of get themselves engaged in, in this um, history of HBCUs. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about these, this issue of race and inclusion and diversity, which is sort of what you've described a bit of. Um, um, Ron, if you could sort of, I know we mentioned a little bit about sort of America's history of racial oppression, uh, which is not a secret around the world, but um, just sort of the, the, the means by which, uh, the opportunities by which um, um, students of color, persons of color had opportunities to go to, to, um, to, go to school, um, to find higher educational opportunities and sort of just uh, get some sense of sort of the, the role that HBCUs play today and more to, more to the point, um, the sort of the prominence of some HBCUs. Maybe you could give us some examples of some of the most well-known HBCUs and others that, that folks may have heard of more prominently. Obviously, there are 105, and uh, my, my guess is that folks in, in China have heard of Harvard and Yale, but apparently they've heard of some others as well. 
Well, sure. Um, you know, the, the kind of stalwarts of, of higher education um, within the African-American community um, at the turn of the century uh, may still almost be about the same. You know, the, the leaders um, are Howard University, for instance, which is the, uh, the uh, alma mater of Thurgood Marshall, um, uh, Supreme Court Justice. Um, there's Fisk University in Nashville, which um, is the alma mater for um, W.E.B. Du Bois, the activist philosopher. There are, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., civil rights hero and Nobel Prize winner, is a um, alum of, of Morehouse College, um, an all-male school in Atlanta, Georgia, which is part of kind of a plethora of, of black colleges, which includes Clark, um, um, Spelman, which is an all-female school, um, and also uh, Morris Brown, um, which is not doing so well. You know, there are other, which, which, which we may get around to, forces that um, have changed the landscape. And then, you know, more currently, you have, um, you know, an Oprah Winfrey, a graduate of Tennessee State University. Um, and so um, Spike Lee, the director, um, who, whose films, no matter how you feel about his films, um, you know, has is a Morehouse graduate. And, um, you know, and Morehouse has a very kind of activist strain to its um, sort of ideology, which is why his films turn out to be kind of, um, you know, some may say activist, some may say preachy, you know, but it's certainly him carrying out a kind of school of thought and a mission that's um, kind of inculcated in this group of um, um, graduates. Um, and so, you know, and they continue to produce some of the best and brightest with resources that, you know, um, have been kind of declining. Um, so, um, and of course now, you know, we, we have students like Tondo, we're reaching out. I mean, actually we, part of the, it, it's, the, the, you know, beautiful that she sort of rounds out the mosaic of, of thinking at our university, but it also is strategically smart for us to expand the population of students that we bring in, you know, um, um, to in, kind of broaden our revenue stream as we compete more and more with mainstream schools, you know, here in North Carolina, whether it be a Chapel Hill or a Duke, who actually are going after some of the best and brightest students. And so, you know, um, we kind of fortify our place in the uh, kind of higher ed ecosystem by bringing a tondo in, you know, um, from, 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 from far away, you know? Um, and it only enhances our, our kind of cultural diversity, but also our kind of economic um, vitality as well. And it, it's probably worth stressing for our Chinese audience that there was a time period in America where um, if you were the wrong color, 
you could not go to uh, a number of the schools that we're talking about, uh, where we essentially had built up a, um, a dual system where if you were white, there was one list of schools you went to. Um, if you were Catholic, there was one list of schools you went to. If you were African-American, there was a different list of schools that you went to. Um, and, and one of the things that, that HBCUs, as well as a number of other um, specialty mission institutions, um, are currently wrestling with is as we move away from um, those systems, as those systems increasingly recede into history, uh, we're now having to um, try to compete essentially for students like the ones we have here uh, and convince them that this is the educational experience that that we can offer them and kind of these are the important traditions ideals and um, and educational opportunities they can have and a couple of examples of special mission institutions would include uh, you can have whether it's the um, uh, all women's colleges uh, that are out there uh, we mentioned Spelman which also happens to be an HBCU um, there is uh, Wesleyan in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, there are military schools, uh, whether they are the United States military academies like the um, West Point Army uh, School, Annapolis is where the Navy goes. Uh, and then there are also private institutions like Virginia Military Institute and the Citadel in South Carolina. Um, there's a number of different uh, religious denominations that founded educational institutions across America. Uh, the Jesuits especially founding places like Boston College and Notre Dame. Uh, there are Baptist institutions like, say, Wingate University, where my wife teaches. Um, so there are a number of different groups that have, throughout American history, uh, sought to found institutions of higher learning uh, to provide their communities an opportunity to advance. And, and one of those um, ultimately will become Johnson C. Smith University. Um, and just briefly, um, Johnson C. Smith uh, will be founded um, in 1867 in, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is in the Piedmont region of North Carolina. It's right in the middle of the state. It was founded by uh, two Presbyterian ministers who sought to uh, establish a school for freedmen. That is to say, those uh, formerly enslaved persons who now had opportunity um, the opportunities that they had were, of course, quite limited, and uh, the, op the, the need for, to provide education uh, and training of some kind was paramount. So, so Johnson C. Smith was founded as um, a Biddle Memorial Institute, the purpose of which was to train the next generation of, um, of uh, teachers and preachers, as it were, so um, education and religion. Um, as we talk about JCSU, Israel, I was wondering if you could talk to us about you know, your, why you came to JCSU, how you ended up here, and, and what JCSU means to you, mm -hmm. uh, so we can take this little bit of history and connect it to the current uh, university that, that you attend. Okay. Well, surprisingly, uh, JCSU was definitely, I can say, was, was not one of my original choices when I was uh, uh, really trying to find out and explore where I wanted to attend as far as my collegiate experience. Um, originally, I have a, um, a family member and uncle who attended Morgan State University. And so I just had in, the, in my mind that I was going to Morgan, I got accepted, had received my academic scholarship and everything. Where is Morgan? Morgan, I'm sorry, Morgan State University is in Baltimore, Maryland. It's an HBCU in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, fairly large university. Um, but yeah, I just had my mindset up that I was going to Morgan State. 
and it had just uh, had occurred to me that I wasn't be uh, able to be fin uh, financially packaged through financial aid. Um, so then that actually was sort of a roadblock which prevented me from enrolling in classes. So then after um, high school, I had mentioned that I had moved down here to Charlotte. So then I was also accepted to St. John's in Queens, which is a, um, a predominantly white institution in uh, the metropolitan area of New York City. Um, and same issue there. I wasn't able to be uh, packaged through my financial aid. There was some error that I had made, considering I'm a first-generation <laughs> first, I'm a first college student, so I didn't have like any family members that I could reach out to assist me with my financial aid. So I had moved down here. I didn't know where I was going to go. I had a sister-in-law who I graduated from Johnson C. Smith University. So she was like, Israel, you know, I know you'll love JCSU. You should try it. And I was like, Johnson C. who? Never heard of that school, but I'll try it. So when I came to Smith, um, it was one afternoon, I remember. I came in, applied, got accepted, and received academic scholarship, and met with a financial aid um, counselor. And she actually was able to pinpoint where I had actually mis, um, inserted the information for my financial aid package. So then on the spot, she was able to repackage me and everything. So my mom, she was like, you know, Israel, this is where you're going. This is where you're going. This is where you need to be. So I tell people, JCSU chose me, and I'm fairly mm -hmm. grateful for sticking with the university, and I've loved it since. I wonder, um, uh, Dr. DeForest or Ron, if you guys could talk briefly about this financial aid issue, because yes. everybody at this table knows what that means, <laughs> and um, given the fact that we just made the point that, um, that well, we, we should make the point that Johnson C. Smith University is a private institution, yes. this notion of federal financial aid may confuse some folks, so I wanted to make sure we're clear about the ways in which uh, American University students, black or white or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, secure funds, in many cases, to attend universities uh, across the nation. Well, I can just jump in, just in, uh, anecdotally, if you will, and maybe you can take over, but just sort of more urgently, um, students um, are wrestling right now with this whole financial aid um, issue, um, and one one reason is that many of the, um, the you know the banking industry actually um, fuels the 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 college many of the loans, and the families must qualify based on their own income to receive those loans. And um, after our um, like 2008, 2009, during the recession of the banking industry, they started to really look at, um, at who was credit worthy. And they started to change some of the formulas of credit worthiness because they got worried about bad loans, right? And so they raised the standard in which families could receive loans and um, and in doing so pretty much hurt African-American families, um, poor families, but it really kind of had a dis disparate impact on on um, on on African-Americans and HBCUs, which ended up sending home lots of students, um, thousands of students that formerly were qualified were no longer qualified to, to come to schools like um, Smith. Now, some schools 
were um, and students were able to kind of recover. You know, if you have money in your endowments, for instance, you could sort of figure out ways to make up uh, and supplement this and keep these students there. But then in other cases, they were sending them home because there was no kind of pool of money that you could tap. And so hence, you, you come into this whole, um, like, what, what the funding pools are, as you had mentioned, Dr. Joseph, which is, you know, endowments, you know, um, which is sort of a reservoir of, of, of cash that's um, given through individuals and corporations, you know. Um, and then you have other, um, you know, then you're either on tuition you know, um, and so at a private school like Smith, which is pretty much just, we, we, you know, we're motored along by tuition, um, it, 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 it hurts. And so, you know, a lot of folks are feeling the squeeze right now. Yeah, Ron, you're here largely as the expert on HBCUs, and Dr. DeForest is going to be our resident expert on uh, the university. So even though he's not a financial aid specialist, <laughs> yeah. I was hoping you could sort of broadly summarize the process by which students, college students, pay for, pay for university in the United States. Yeah, so regardless of whether you go to a, um, a state-funded school or a private school, uh, most students fill out a federal form uh, called the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal, Finance, federal Student Aid. Uh, and that forms a basic document that reports out uh, family income, student income, and helps schools calculate what a student's need is going to be when compared to the, the bill of what it will cost to go to a school. Um, and based on those numbers and those formulas, uh, there are grants that can be had, uh, the most famous probably being the, uh, the Pell Grant, which targets low-income students to, um, it's a straight cash payment by the federal government uh, to help students attend school. Uh, there are other sources of grants, whether they are from uh, private institutions, uh, whether the school itself uh, does that. So when the, the, um, the loan crisis hit, uh, Johnson C. Smith University uh, took a deep breath and started to write out an increasing number of grants. Uh, it could only go so far, uh, but we, we did try to help out what students we could. Uh, after grants are exhausted, whether they come from public and private sources, uh, there are a number of um, loan op options, some of which are run by the federal government, some of which are run by private banks, uh, in which students can borrow money uh, to continue to attend school with the idea that um, they are making an investment in their future. Um, someone had done a study several years ago, and the, uh, the difference over a person's lifetime, uh, if you attend university, generally speaking, you make $1 million more over the, the entirety of your career than you do if you just have a high school diploma. Um, so it's, it's a fairly good investment. It's a fairly safe investment. Uh, the, the challenges and the risks come uh, mm -hmm. primarily in terms of students actually making it through all four years, um, which is something that I'm sure our students in China listening are equally as familiar with, uh, the challenge of getting through their classes. And as we're wrapping up the semester here, um, our students completing all their assignments and sitting for their exams. Indeed. 
Indeed, that's a, it is a challenge. Um, Evil people like us standing in right, their right. way. <laughs> Faculty members standing in the way with grades and exams and the like. Um, I have just a couple of, of, of sort of broader questions, and I wanted to ask a, ask these in, in a couple different ways so I can get your perspective, um, um, Tondo and Israel, about this this notion. Uh, because effectively, w what I want to try to do is is help folks understand uh, those folks who might only be familiar with American universities of the PWI variety, primarily white institutions, the predominantly white institutions, those institutions that they may have heard about, Harvard, Yale, right, the, the major universities which they would have heard about and maybe seen in pop culture. So. What I want to ask you is, how does a place like Johnson C. Smith and HBCUs generally, you know, how does it compare with those? And I don't necessarily mean in terms of academics. I mean in terms of the the the, the, the culture of the place, the uh, the livelihood of the place, the students, the faculty. Um, you know, what is unique about the HBCU experience um, for someone who might only be able to understand or has only seen something from a PWI institution? You know, what's unique? What's different? Um, I can definitely say what really brands and markets HBCUs in America is that it's definitely a different culture. It's a culture within itself. Um, having been a student, a, 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 a current senior, getting ready to graduate, I can definitely say I've learned to appreciate the culture within HBCUs. Um, I guess like a lot of times people looking on the outside don't really understand like what really goes on at an HBCU, but here as, as, as students um, being surrounded by people who really look like you and, and talk like you and people you can really relate to, it's like, it's uh, it's not just school, It's it becomes family at this point. Like when you're surrounded by people who are like-minded individuals who come from similar backgrounds and, have, and share similar stories as you, it's more relatable and personal. So it's not like you're just going to school just to get your education, it's it, it becomes more personal, and I can definitely say I've, I, I've, I've learned to grow and love and appreciate the cultures of HBCUs. Um, what I think it does, uh, what a, a school like JCSU does is it validates you as a student, um, where you could apply to places like Harvard and Yale and feel just the burn in the application process alone, let alone being in the environment that is so fiercely competitive. Um, you can admire the fact that you're in an environment that encourages you to be your best self without feeling like you're being torn down by um, competition that is so um, rough, really. Um, so you can reach your best potential and um, still be the best version of yourself without being um, overanalyzed and um, looking at your classmates as uh, people who are, you know, your competit competitors instead of people who are, who are trying to lift you up as well as, as you're trying to lift them up. Very interesting, um, and I wonder if we could if we could talk within that context about what effectively the real the focus of the Center uh, for American Culture and Race is, which is to say the the American racial experience. And, and obviously, um, you guys have two different perspectives on it because, in one sense, Israel, you uh, you born in Long Island from the United States originally, and so you have lived the American racial experience from beginning to end. Yes. 
Tondo, you come from a, a, from South Africa, a very different um, country, but not an altogether different mm -hmm. racial experience, although uh, we could talk about the, the horrors of both, and we could do that for a very long time. But I wonder if we could just sort of see if we can deal a little bit with this, these questions, because, and, and the truth of the matter is that um, our Chinese audience has uh, probably a different conception of the term race. Mm -hmm. uh, when we use the term race in the United States, we really just mean really skin color. Mm -hmm. And we talk about black and white. Sometimes we say brown for other folks as well. Um, but we mean skin tone, mm -hmm. and we mean the heritage that that, that reflects. Um, the Chinese don't often use it that way. In fact, they don't use the term race within that context at all. They mean ethnicity, mm -hmm. um, one's ethnic heritage, which may be um, different uh, in China, uh, widely different, even though one may look very similar, or at least what may be perceived to look very similar. So I was just wondering if you could sort of talk about that issue, if, as, or comment on that, if you could, just to help these folks understand Sort of the American racial experience as much as we can talk about that kind of thing. That's a big topic, of course, but but this is the real root of this matter. Um, HBCUs feed a need to serve those who have been underserved, mm -hmm. and I just want to make sure we're clear, uh, as, at least as much as we can in the few minutes that we have um, about I can this. Jump in on yeah, this please. A, a little bit just to kind of give you a, a, a small arc that of, of different kind of racial experiences that I've lived through you know so my um granddad and grandmother left the south um which was a rough rough place they left tennessee and they went to you know then during the 40s and 50s to detroit which is where the industrial revolution in this country was happening and my grandmother was educated and she worked as a school teacher and then a principal and my dad uh, my granddad worked on the assembly line in a city that was sort of becoming kind of a black economic mecca, right? And so there was a robust black middle class by the time I was a high school senior. What city? Oh, Detroit, Detroit, Michigan. And um, I wound up at the University of Missouri, Columbia, which is central Missouri, which is just made national news as being kind of a racial... A racial hotbed, frankly, you know, and it hadn't changed much. It was where I, the first time I called was called the most derogatory um, uh, euphemism for black people, which is the term nigger, right there on campus, right? Um, and it also it's also the place in which um, you um, where they fa fail to make African-American students feel as though that they were at home, that the retention rate was very, very small of, you know, of, of 100 black students that might, sh that would arrive, I would say they re retained 30 or 40 of them, right? Most would wind up leaving, you know? Now, in doing the book, what I've recognized is that there are communities of African-Americans at the smaller you know, at the HBCUs that wind up just developing these very tight networks that they move through life with, right? That they marry people that they met at the HBCU, that they wind up turning to them for, um, for um, job references and that, that they become sort of the intelligence 
that they rely on, that their funerals and weddings and ch like, it, you know, that and, and, and I think that in mainstream society, that is the experience that the Yaley or the Harvard person, and they recreate that here at here in this, um, in these smaller institutions. It's just to kind of create a, a um, um, I would say, uh, a system that that is uh, full of what you sort of need to turn to to survive in the, in, a, in a country that historically has not had your best interest at heart. Well, for me, growing up in um Johannesburg, South Africa. I grew up in a small uh, town called Benoni where I was one of very few um, black people in the neighborhood and in the schools that I attended. And um, South Africa is similar in history to the U.S. in the, in the um, fact that we've gone through apartheid, which was our own system of segregation between, you know, people who are different colors and um, uh, growing up in South Africa, South Africa only became a dem democratic country uh, 21 years ago and so the the race issue is still pretty much raw while the country has taken great strides in um, moving forward and redressing past issues uh, a lot of things are still um, in the in the air when it comes to race and I can attest to experiencing those things firsthand as a young uh, black girl being in schools where I could not identify with um, anybody um, being called the derogatory version of a black person in South Africa which would be a Kaffir um, by um, uh, parents of um, of people I went to school with and people who I was friends with in, in school and um, and so coming here, I, uh, I didn't expect for uh, American race issues to be uh, where they are. Um, uh, a lot of people look at America and idolize a lot uh, of what the country is. Um, but you come here and the reality is slightly different. And it's, um, it's an adjustment where you come from a country where a lot of forgiveness is trying to happen. And over here, the racial uproar and tension is uh, really thick. Um, and so it's been interesting watching um, my fellow students rally for things like uh, Black Lives Matter, which are, you know, which are things that have become hashtags for the viewers who are college students will know uh, what hashtags are. Um, and uh, looking at that and uh, seeing it as something that my parents and grandparents went through and not even expecting for myself to have to go through or rally for um in america at such time like hundreds of years after you know this segregation this, this slavery um and so it's been interesting trying to um be open-minded and meeting people who are not as necessarily hbcu students and formulating different um opinions and trying to be as uh optimistic really as I can when it comes to like the issue of race in America but I can definitely say undoubtedly that um, there's still a lot to be done in in redressing um, uh, race 
and what it means in in America. Israel uh, Tondo said that with the race issue in South Africa was still raw, and um, as someone who is probably on the front lines mm -hmm. of this matter, I just mm -hmm. I'm going to give you a, a chance to talk about this as much as you or much as you or as literal as you would like. Mm -hmm. um, the extent to which um, that's that that is true of the United States as well that the issue of race is still a very raw subject. Um, and I just really wanted to hear your perspective on it in this part so you could share with an international audience, um, you know, what what the experience, uh, we've heard from Ron, what the, the experience of a young black male is um, in, in the United States. Definitely, I can say it's as uh, my colleague Tondo had mentioned before, it's very raw. A lot of times you find uh, there's some people who don't really even want to address the issue, which is an issue within itself. But um, as a black male in America at this time, you know, we're definitely faced with a lot of issues when it comes to, um, uh, we say, law enforcement, educational, um, a lot of, I can say, like, a, some barriers that African-American men are faced and sometimes don't know how to particularly handle and address the situations, which uh, can also be, uh, so can be detrimental as well. Um, so I can say, like, personally, as an African-American male in America now, uh, growing up um, wasn't always afforded the best uh, circumstances or situations of growing up. We didn't have the best life. But um, with my family, we learned to uh, go with and deal with what we had and what we were given. So uh, I can personally attest that growing up in, uh, in America, well, Long Island specifically, I had the opportunity where I'm from is a, a town called Central Isley. And uniquely, um, Central Isop is one of the most, most diverse towns or cities on Long Island. So I had the opportunity of going up with blacks, uh, Caucasians, Asians, Middle Easterns, Italians, Caribbean students. So I'm very lucky and fortunate to have had that experience growing up. But um, what I can say, like attesting as a student growing up um, on Long Island, a lot of times you find that there weren't a lot of teachers or administrators or public officials that looked like you. So at times, they really our best interest wasn't always kept in mind. So growing up uh, in school, we had I had a lot of Caucasian teachers who um, sort of like they were there and didn't really invest their time and energy into a lot of their students because of I guess you can say racial presumptions and maybe a lot of times they weren't afforded the opportunity at home to give them that extra push and stuff like that. So when you got into the classroom, maybe their um, their potential as African Americans and males in this in this case, you can say it was definitely wasn't always sh highlighted or showcased within the classroom. So a lot of times I found myself, uh, my my teachers weren't really there for me. They were there to be there, but they weren't there specifically for me and really assisting when where I needed. So that's when I I, I came up and, and decided that I, I I wanted to go to an HBCU. I wanted to be surrounded by people who look like me, professors who look like me, a place where I was, can definitely be guaranteed my success. Because it was no way am I saying that I was incompetent of performing. Education has always been a, a forefront of my my life. It's something that I've always made, uh, tried to maintain and keep serious with me within my own self and my values. So that's where like where the HBCU comes in mind. It's to me, it's more so of a a gateway and another path to success because as an African-American male we can always we, we know that it's, it's 
education is not always the first thing on, on, on young black men's mind. You have other avenues, a way that they can provide for themselves, you know, whether it be the streets, whether it be gangs, whether it be jail, whatever. So just education was my way and what, was what I promised myself that I always wanted to pursue to, to, to provide a better life, not only for myself and my future family. One of the, um, and we'll just have a, one more topic here and then we'll, then we'll close down. One of the um, things that we wrote um, in, in the proposal to help the, to fund the American Cultural Center uh, in, in China was to help uh, a Chinese audience understand American exceptionalism which is the um, sort of kind of widespread and sort of um, um, often unspoken belief in the United States that there is something unique about this place. And uh, depending on who you talk to, it will manifest in different ways. Some people will describe it in political terms or economic terms and some in religious terms. Um, in, our, in our proposal, we, we offered to help explain American exceptionalism to a Chinese audience so that we could convince them that Americans, by and large, um, are, are unique in as far as that we believe in our flaws and have the opportunity to correct them. Um, there is nothing more American than getting knocked down and coming back. And in our case, that means um, addressing and redressing the legacy of slavery and racial oppression in the United States. Um, there's not many nations on the planet that are that have the mechanisms of their of their governance that are designed to both allow for errors and allow for the correction of those errors. Usually you have to go through one tyranny to the next. Our system has built-in improvement mechanisms where we can fix what went wrong. And so I, I say all that to ask this last question. Um, how do HBCUs serve the cause of, of racial justice and an understanding of race in the United States? And maybe that's too big of a question. Maybe you've already spoken to it a bit. Well, it's pretty big, but... <laughs> good, and you got it, just a few minutes, too, so yeah, be quick. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, back to the idea of exceptionalism, I think that um, the the uh, America, the, the, the HBCU is really the quintessential American story. It's not just an African-American story, that, uh, that there were people... Who believed in 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 learning and in in in, in 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 education, and they believed it as a passport to to freedom. You know, not just financial freedom, but just sort of basic intellectual enlightenment. And um, and they, uh, you know, um, and there were white abolitionists and missionaries that got behind these these schools and, and, and they were teachers in these schools early on in the inception of these schools. And the first leaders of these um, HBCUs were not, they didn't, you know, the, they were white. You know, the first black presidents of these schools probably didn't even appear into the 50s and 60s. Um, and that would be early. Um, and so I believe, you know, and if you look at the universities now in terms of composition you'll see the trustees and some of the people that give to these institutions still you know there a lot of them are um, politically conservative you know they don't look like um, the student population you know they're they, they're white male conservatives you know um, at the, and they happen to be some of the biggest donors 
of these um, of these institutions. And so, I I think that um, there's a certain idealism, you know, that is at the heart of of these schools that um, continue to make them great, continue to sort of um, to be what makes this culture uh, unique and special and, 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 and there's all sorts of dissonance and conflict and ironies and paradoxes but ultimately um, uh, you know these black colleges are, are you know they are an asset for all Americans not just African Americans and I think a lot of pe enough people believe it believe that to keep them alive and, and vital Ron, thank you so much. Tondo, thank you. Israel, thank you so much. Dr. DeForest, as always, I appreciate you being here, and we are, we are um, uh, going to sign off for this podcast this time, and uh, we hope that you'll be able to join us for our next uh, production. Uh, it'll be up in, uh, in just a week or so. Uh, in the meantime, thanks once again to our guests, and uh, thank, you, thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Archways Podcast is a production of Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, USA, in partnership with the Guangdong Bayun University and Guangzhou's People Republic of China. Archways is made possible through generous funding from the United States Embassy in Beijing, China, and through the College of Arts and Letters at Johnson C. Smith University. Additional support has been provided by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Subscribe to this podcast through iTunes. You can email us at jcsuartsletters at gmail.com.